From Amaya Media, you're listening to The Way We Live, a show for all the women here in the Middle East who are looking to enhance their lives. I'm your host, Natalie Shafani. It's National Day for the UAE this week, and what better way to mark the 48th year of the UAE celebrations than to sit down with the inspiring Ilham al Qasim, the first Arab female and Emirati to ski to the North Pole back in 2010. I was very curious about the motivations behind taking on such a challenging endeavor, the struggles she faced, and how she continued to push herself after her record-breaking trip. Elham actually grew up in the U.S. and then moved to the UAE when she was 12, which is quite a shift to make as a teenager. Of course, my parents had prepped us and raised us always to have a deep sense of identity, of Emirati identity. In some ways, I, I, you know, people are often surprised at how deep that sense of identity is, but it was built and it's a building the building blocks of that identity are very different to traditional upbringing here absolutely um and it is very much uh built off of an appreciation for diversity mm-hmm. and uh in different cultures so we you know we're living abroad we had to come to understand different cultures while still being very proud of our own and so coming back to the UAE was definitely a mix of you know bringing the favorite parts of what i experienced as a child growing up in the US mm-hmm. But a lot, also a lot of excitement about being able to reclaim my own culture and my own home yeah. for the things that I missed when I was living abroad. And needless to say, though, um, sh- moving countries and making new friends in the beginning of your teenage years. Definitely. I mean, I can relate so much because when I was 12, I moved back home to Lebanon as well. Right. Prior to that, I was living in Saudi Arabia. Uh-huh. And with that, I was living in a very multicultural community. We were all, you know, expats, spoke different languages, different religions. I went back to Lebanon. We were all Lebanese. Mm-hmm. When you enter as a teen, you're different. And those differences show so much more when you're at the age. You're a lot more vulnerable, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. And um, you become more aware exactly. as a teen of your acutely aware of how different you are. Mm-hmm. Any teen does, but mm-hmm. when you come from a different environment, it's almost like being an alien. Exactly. Look, I think all these journeys in life, the hardest of mm-hmm. journeys are what make you who you are, as long as you're able to be open and learn from them. That's so true. today I'm absolutely not afraid of being different mm-hmm. to the norm, mm-hmm. um, while also respecting the norm yeah. and you know trying to always take the good. So you move back to the UAE. You finish school and you go to university as well in the UAE. Mm-hmm. From there, you end up moving to London. I really wanted to do my master's. Mm-hmm. And um, the options I was looking at at the time were the London School of Economics mm-hmm. and Columbia in New York. Yes. And, um, you know, at the time, you know, my parents were very much worried about me going to the U.S. It was post mm-hmm. 9-11. And so they preferred for me to be in Europe mm-hmm. but because of timing that timing is everything isn't yeah, it yeah exactly and I'm I'm glad for it because LSE is such a good school mm-hmm. and I ended up um, studying social policy which is sort of um, um, a mix of anthropology and sociology it's again when you're studying how societies form and how human behaviors and norms form you are subconsciously studying yourself and how right you choose to interact in the world and live in the world and build your career in the world and um, how much time you give externally versus internally, Yeah, how you form a decision, how you let others form decisions for you. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these topics are being unpacked. It steered me towards a degree that maybe I wouldn't have taken otherwise in an environment, the LSC, which is known for just 
a, a world of questioning, right? So you question everything. You don't take anything for granted. We didn't have textbooks. Oh, wow. And so the way the coursework material was structured is there would be one topic per lecture and then you had to go off to the library and study the topic and there would be a suggested reading list. And you mm -hmm. needed to come to class with your own informed perspective and be ready That's to debate it. How amazing is that? I mean, to be told there's no one right. Yes. There are a bunch of people who have thought about this. Go read what they've written and form your own view. Mm -hmm. In every single lesson, it was just such a different way of learning that I'm so glad I ended up going to London. So you finished LSE and what, what was your intended career path? What did you want to do after that? It's funny because I was very clear when I went to LSE that I didn't want to work in corporate. Mm -hmm. And I really did believe that um, through the course of my learning that creating better access to sustainable livelihoods mm -hmm. is really what the world needed, right. reducing the inequality gap mm -hmm. um, between uh, different groups within mm -hmm. the, the same community. And so, for example, I think Latin America has done a lot of work to reduce the inequality gap. Norway and the other Scandinavian countries have done a lot to reduce inequality. Sure. There are different ways to tackle it, but that was the topic that I was mm -hmm. passionate about. And, um, you know, I think I applied to 100 jobs. And um, what I found in the development world is it's even harder than the private sector because... less opportunities, aren't Yeah, they? for someone with zero years experience, but great pedigree of education, you know, no, no one has the time or even, a, you know, the program to train you to be able to transfer your passion into real outputs. Yeah. I then decided to apply for you know, a training program. How do I get practical skills from the private sector for the next two to three years to be able to then take back with okay. me to the development sector? And um, and so I just started looking, asking around and looking up uh, different training programs for fresh graduates. And um, along the way, this opportunity came up um, to do sort of corporate finance training at J.P. Morgan Investment Bank. Wow, sharp left turn. A sharp left turn, <laughs> exactly. Like, and I think um, you know, I was always very geeky about math. I did believe that understanding how the world is business is financed uh -huh. would be very helpful to do the work that I wanted to do. Right. That was my logic at the time. They have a good training program, and I'll also see how the big back corporate world works, yes. and then I can maybe um, bring that into my own, you know, sort of uh, flavor of right. how to really progress. And how long did you stay at J.P. Morgan? Three years. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you ended up doing some time there. Mm -hmm. And did you go to North Pole after that? Like, what was the transition between J.P. Morgan to end of the world, top of the world, <laughs> North Pole? How did that happen? Well, um, so I started with J.P. Morgan with an internship. What happened was when all is said and done, I mean, they have a really good training program. And so obviously it challenged me. And I'm not one to not get excited about a yeah, challenge. I'm clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember when we went for orientation, mm -hmm. the, there was um, an analyst, so someone two years my senior that did the orientation. And then when he said, are there questions, someone said, you know, is it true that we'll be working till two in the morning? And I remember it was someone in the back of the room. I turned around and looked at him. I was like, what is idiot like mm -hmm. really this guy what kind of a how brown nose could he be like he's like 
No one's staying here till two in the morning. What is he talking about? Why would anyone stay here till two in the morning? Little did you know. <laughs> Little did I know. I would two in the morning would be the early yeah. out, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I think the reality really hit me smack in the face in the, in the internship, and then I quickly realized that there was so much more to learn, and that that those that was knowledge that I wanted. And being stretched that hard, you know, to have seven projects at the same time, to barely sleep and not to have a single error. The margin of error is zero on every single project. It's so much pressure, accepting. though, isn't it, as well? It is. But with hindsight, I would never have been as good a version of myself if I hadn't been put in that pressure cooker yeah. for, for a few years. I get that. And so during that time, I built, I would definitely say, a very, very deep work ethic. Mm -hmm. Um, a commitment to the outcome, not to the task. So no one has to tell me, oh, now can you do this? That's not the way it works. We all keep going until the entire outcome is delivered. And then, you know, just an appreciation for repetition, a certain confidence that if you repeat something often enough, you'll be able to do it. You mm -hmm. just don't have all the time in the world. So you need to pick what you learn. Now, what happened by the end of the three years when the analyst program comes to an end and you move on to more managerial roles, I, um, you know, I was there for a very specific reason. And so I, I think I felt I had absorbed a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so all of that excitement started to sort of come down. And more importantly, um, you know, I, I had studied social policy. Yeah. And I really did believe in understanding human behavior and how, you know, why people behave the way they do and how they come under pressure and all of that. So a lot of the harder side of investment banking, I started to see and think, mm, that's not me. You know, I'm not going I'm never going to be someone that would, you know, leverage fear to get a certain outcome. So as 2009 came to a close with the global financial crisis in full swing, Elham was ready for a change. So crisis was in full swing. People were losing their job everywhere. There were no jobs in Dubai even to come back to. And my friends were like, what are you doing? Why are you thinking of moving? No one would think of moving when they're holding a mm -hmm. job at this point. And I just kept saying, you know, it's, I'm not in the right place anymore. And I could feel like my energy was going towards something else. Completely. Like it hurts for you not to move on with your life, doesn't yes. it? Yeah. yeah. It's not that something was wrong. It's that I knew that there was something more right. Yes. I just felt at that age, I couldn't accept that I was done learning. How old were you at that point? 26. 26, okay. And I explored master's, PhDs. What do I want to do? What is it that I'm craving and yearning? And then um, I decided that if I really wanted to challenge myself and really also challenge my, what I was challenging was the path that I had taken, the way I had chosen to learn in life. Because there I was saying I spent three years working seven days a week till two, three, four, five in the morning with absolutely no life other than work without exception. What did I gain from that that I carry forward into my life? I have a lot of skills I could use in the bank, mm -hmm. but what about what do I carry with me outside the bank if yeah. I'm going to dedicate myself like this to mm -hmm. a job? This was the birth of the expedition. And so the, and the reason was I decided, look, I could do another master's. I'm a, you know, I'm a nerd at heart. Yeah. I know I'll get into a great school. And I know I'll do wealth, and it's yeah. my comfort zone is to study. Yes. But what my comfort zone was not was, you know, extreme sports. Mm -hmm. Were you athletic before that? Were you relatively fit? I mean, as a young adult, I, would, I definitely had gym 
membership. Okay. And <laughs> that doesn't mean that you work out because I yeah, don't work out at my gym. So. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll tell you what, what did happen is when I finished banking, I was so unfit uh-huh. that for the first six months, I was one of my goals was to get fit. Okay. And so for six months, I trained with a trainer three times a week. I put myself a target and I smashed it in six well months. Yes. And so then what happened also was I was like, oh, I don't really want to go to the gym if there's no goal. Uh-huh. Um, and then I and then I knew I needed a goal that would be truly motivating. Let's like let's talk about this goal. I mean, why the North Pole? Mm. Out of the whole world, you have mountains, you have marathons. Mm. Why that? And why not anything else? Um, as someone who's done this, I respect whatever goal someone puts themselves uh-huh. because it's a very personal thing, right. and you have to truly want yes. that thing. Otherwise, you'll give up on the training, the prep. Or let's say even you get past that, in all of these, there's pain in the journey. And so you, it's it's easy to give up if you don't actually know why you're there. Okay. But, you know, if yeah. you told me, Ilham, go run a marathon, I'd probably be like, mm, I don't think I can do that. Do it for you. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't for me. I got Not that. because something is wrong with it. It's, uh-huh. it's not, it wasn't what I needed then. Maybe sometime in the future, I'll say, actually, I wanted to do that. But yeah. at the time, I didn't want a marathon because there are too many people. Oh, Interesting. So what okay. I was looking for was quiet. I see. Uh, a place. Some solitude, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Where I could truly connect to nature mm-hmm. um, without interruption of man-made world. And I wanted something in particular that I could do where I'm disconnected from my entire support system. Uh-huh. So I didn't want my friends, my family, my trainers. I didn't want anyone. Your phone. <laughs> Not even. Yes. Yeah. I didn't want. I didn't want to be able to call someone and say I'm scared. Okay. I wanted to be put in that extreme situation okay. where if I couldn't dig deep and find my own resilience, yeah. that then I would fail. Mm-hmm. And that's up to me. And I need to choose if I'm going to do that. And at that time in my life, I was, you know, like going with this uh-huh. wave of life. Yeah. And I thought, okay, and what if that wave stops? Will I be sad or will I be okay? And do mm-hmm. I get my own fulfillment internally or do I seek it externally? Okay. And so these were the kinds of questions I was um, working through. Okay. And that's why the being alone and being not being in a marathon where I could run with my friends uh-huh. was absolutely important to me. I see. All of these mountains have a path that someone has laid down mm-hmm. um, that you can follow with a campsite, with some makeshift bathrooms. Whereas with the North Pole, you know, you're skiing over Arctic ice caps that are floating on the ocean that melt each year and reform each year. So there is no path. We'll be back right after this. Hey, it's Shrag from Maya Media, and I wanted to tell you about another show on our network called Tales of the Trade, where we feature Dubai's pioneers and the stories behind the ideas and the communities they've brought to life. You can find all of the episodes of the show in your favorite podcast player right now, and we'll be back with a new season later in the year. You can find more information on our website, talesofthe.trade. Welcome back. I'm Natalie, and you're listening to The Way We Live with our guest, Alham Al-Qasim. Scaling the North Pole is no easy feat, of course. But how do you go about becoming the first Arab woman to do so? And when you're about to do something that people around you would consider crazy, how would you go about telling them? My parents, a lot of people don't expect this, are very traditional Emirati yeah. parents. Uh-huh. And um, 
but I would say I benefit from them being, you know, sort of worldly Mm -hmm. and educated enough to know that their kids will be different to maybe what they expected. Mm -hmm. And as long as we stick to our values and principles, that's okay. Yeah. There is that. However, of course, this is Mm -hmm. (laughs) not within a small margin of difference what I did. And so, first of all, I didn't tell anyone no one about it until I was sure. Okay. Which is the very informed right thing to do. Definitely. Always, yeah. always. Never do something crazy and ask someone if it's a good idea to do something crazy. You make sure that yeah. that crazy thing you can do <laughs> and then you tell people, I'm doing this crazy right. thing, you know. <laughs> um, and so after I finished all my research, validated everything, what would I eat? How do I train? How would I fund it? Once I was sure of all of it, then I sat down uh, with my parents And I did it one by one. So I did my father alone and my mother alone. And because there's very different tactics to convince. With my father, I think, um, you know, I related to his sense of adventure. And I talked through how that has influenced my whole life and how even now as an adult, you know, my preference is to do things that go on safari Uh as opposed to go to glitzy big cities and how that will always be a part of my mm-hmm. character. And there's a deep calling in me to explore. And could he understand that deep calling? And could he respect it? And could he mm-hmm. allow me the space to answer that call? And he said yes. And he insisted yes. And I kept saying, are you sure? Yes. What if I wanted to go to the moon, Baba? Could I go to the moon? And he said, I would come with you to the moon. <laughs> and I said, do you mean that? Or you're just saying that because you think there won't be... Uh, civilian trips to the moon in our lifetime. He said, no, I mean it. If it's available, I'll book a spot for me and you. I said, okay. So if you were okay with the moon and you wouldn't mind the North Pole, it's a bit closer. <laughs> <laughs> and so, of course, then he realized I'm serious. Yeah. So there was a change in tone. But um, eventually, he got on board by offering to join me until the very last step. So okay. he came with me to uh, Longyearbyen, where we started mm-hmm. the trip and waited for me there till I came back. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, that's how he got Very comfortable lucky. with yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, with my mother, it was, you know, the typical protective yes. fear of a mother. It's more about the safety mm-hmm. than anything else. I have thought so. And so she kept saying, there will be avalanche. I'm like, mama, there's no mountains. There's only flat ice. <laughs> no, nothing for the ice to come down from. <laughs> and then it was no, 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 until I said to her, I'll put the UAE flag up there, mama. And it's never been there. And then she physically stopped. And she sat upright and she said, you'll put our flag there? And I said, yeah. And it's never been there. Okay, you can go. Wow. That was it. Wow, you yeah. knew exactly what to say to her. Yeah, her. yeah. It's fascinating, it's <laughs> insane. Yeah. Okay, so like you get their permission, you get their blessing, I guess, and you start training. What was your training like? What did you do to get in that kind of shape? Um, well, you know, I'm a businesswoman, so I sent an RFP out to a bunch of different <laughs> training firms. I love firms. that, yeah. <laughs> Request for proposal. Yes. To, to train a normal person to make it to the North Pole. And so um, it was very interesting getting the responses in. And then I pressure tested them all. And I ended up going with a solution that um, that basically was holistic. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they, they we had five months to work. And 
they first started building baseline endurance mm-hmm. and then they moved on to strength. Okay. And then uh, they did sports specific training. So, you know, month, month, month. And so they were layering different things. They had a plan and they were so layering it on top. What was endurance for you? Was that was like running on the treadmill or ellipticals or? It was ellipticals. Uh-huh. It was jogging. I was living in London. So I okay. could jog out wherever. So there was a time where I was not allowed to take a bus. So wherever I needed to mm. go, I had to run Okay. too. I love that. Yeah. And so that became my lifestyle. And then... Um, the last thing I did was pulling tires in the park. So I'd put a, mm-hmm. a harness on and I'd have, you know, a truck tire attached to it. And then I'd go for three hours in the park. Three hours? Yeah. Pulling a tire? Yeah. And then it became two tires. And then it's two tires and a 10 kilo vest like that. And that came in handy because you had to end up pulling all of your supplies Correct. You when you were up in the North Pole. Correct. How, how much did they weigh? Uh, 42 kilos. Yeah. And by that time, were you ready? Like, was that manageable? You know, I was so focused on the physical training. Mm-hmm. And the the guide that took me kept saying, trust me, you don't have a problem on the physical. It's never the physical is never the problem. It's always the mental resilience mm-hmm. and the mental strength and fortitude is the difference between right. who does well and who doesn't on the expedition. Yeah. And he was right. So um, as I mentioned, the firm that trained me, it was holistic. So they had a competitive sports coach, mm-hmm. like a psychologist that coaches people that compete in sports mm-hmm. on how to deal with self-doubt or, you know, if you have a setback or you have an injury. When they first included her in the program, I remember thinking, I don't need that mm-hmm. because I don't doubt myself. Basically, I got this. I'm I good. got this. Yeah. yeah. And I remember towards the end of the training, we were in the Alps Mm -hmm. and she came and when the lead trainer came with me to the Alps and we were doing sports specific training, cross country skiing there, as well as hiking the mountains for, for, you know, quads and endurance Mm -hmm. in the middle of winter. And I remember the trainer was very mean to me at some points, Mm -hmm. like just pushing me and and even pushing me mentally as Mm -hmm. there's no... There's no whining here now. Right. You're like two months from going. It's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you a hard time now. Yeah. And I remember getting that situation broke me. And and the trainer, the the psychologist that, you know, coaches uh, athletic uh, competitors talked me through it. And her skills were phenomenal, right? So she sat, sat me down. I remember sitting down in the chalet was sitting and hugging my knees and she was talking me through it. So absolutely, you know, everything, I believe everything in life, there's a right way to do things. Mm-hmm. And no one is born knowing how to do them. And it's a crazy world out there that people leave college and are expected to know how to be fully functional, either skills-wise or interpersonal skills-wise in a workplace with no coaching. But then you see, you know, a rugby team, it's all about the coach, the same team, can either win or lose the World Cup depending on the coach. Mm-hmm. This is where for me, I, again, I will always take coaching in anything, anything. And some people would even say it comes across as you don't know or you're not confident. I'm very confident. I just know I want to be my best. Yeah. You accept that like you may need some help to get there. Yes. And that's confidence. And not just that. There are people yeah. that have approached life or this problem from a different set of experiences mm-hmm. or a different technical discipline. Mm-hmm. So why would I not learn from them what they have learned from yeah. their perspective? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think uh, having the coaches there with me to look through every aspect, mm-hmm. all of that was um, 
was you know important that's part of the training did you have a moment when you were up there at the north pole kind of on your way there when something went horribly wrong so the first day i was buzzing right. because oh wow i'm actually yeah. here and everything was so much more beautiful than i thought Imagine. and then um on the second day it's when the reality hits and you need to ski you know nine to eleven hours mm-hmm. in a row in silence because there's no ipod that because it would freeze wouldn't it yeah. Right. Yeah, no iPod. So nothing about your thoughts. Nothing. In silence. And it's freezing. So you're wearing a balaclava mm-hmm. over your face. And everyone skis single file because you're following the leader. And um, obviously this is fresh snow. So the whoever has made the path, yeah. has it's like cycling. Yep. The person at the front does mm-hmm. exerts the most effort. So you're skiing single file. And each person has to ski at their own pace. There's no right pace. The reason being, if you sweat, you um, your in your base layer gets wet. It later freezes when you stop skiing, and so you have to ski at a pace where you don't sweat. Mm-hmm. It's the trick, mm-hmm. and so you're typically about you know a hundred meters between you and the next person, so there's no one to talk to, mm-hmm. and. Um, Your whole system has to work for the cold, not just that few hours of exercise. And basically, I uh, was just not well prepared. And half, probably six hours into the day, I started to feel really lethargic, really sleepy. I mean, I remember my eyes were drooping. Yeah. And I, at some point, I was just like, I can't go any further, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And so I just dropped on my knees, and the guide came to me and said, what are you doing? And I said, you know, I'm really, really tired. Could we, I, I can't take another step. Could we take a break? And he said, no, <laughs> um, we can't, we can't stop. We have to keep going. We have to make the right number of nautical miles north every day. Otherwise, we're not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And so everyone stopped and he he said, show me your snack pack. And basically what had happened was, because while you're skiing, you don't stop for lunch, mm-hmm. but you're working really hard. Yeah. And so we had energy bars and candy bars and nuts and seeds and jellies and all sorts of things that are in your little pouch in the front mm-hmm. for you to eat. Well, I had packed them as whole bars, like, you know, several inches okay. long, and I couldn't bite them. Because <gasps> they were frozen. They're frozen. Yes. So I couldn't bite them. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't eaten. I mean, like very little, just a few nuts and oh. some like uh, seeds and some dried fruit that was, yeah. you know, small enough for me to sort of soften in my mouth. And the same with the water. It just was like freezing cold by the time I was trying to drink it mm-hmm. six hours later. And so I had drunk after, you know, six hours of work, you know, maybe half a liter at most of water, if that, not even. And so I was deeply dehydrated and hypoglycemic. And that's why I felt weak. And so the team stopped and everyone else who had done this before had little bites. And they all shared. They all shared. Wow. And I regained enough strength to finish another two and a half miles, which is what we needed. And you ended up making it there in record time, though, didn't you? But we made it. And look, I remember that night, one uh, one of my colleagues that was on the trip said to me, Because I was feeling bruised even in terms of my will, yeah. right? Like yeah. I failed on the second day. And, um, and of course, as I wanted, there was no one to call. Right. There's no one to call and yes. say, "You're gonna, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. You're going to make it. And that's what I wanted. And this man said to me, 
he was ex-special ops. Yeah. So he's accustomed to being, you know, parachuting into jungles. Yeah. And so he said to me, I understand you. You remind me a lot about of my wife. Okay. And I said, is that right? How come? And he said, well, she's very small and slight like you and therefore doesn't have enough insulating fat. Mm-hmm. And so there's no barrier to keep your vital organs warm. Right. And so she also freezes very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly why she would not put herself in a situation like this. But you did. And what he was saying was, what, what are you doing here? Right. You're slowing all of us down. I see. And so I said to him, well, that's precisely why I am here. Because I need to prove to myself that I can do it anyway. Not yes. because it's easy, but because it's hard. Mm-hmm. And because what for someone may be natural and easy, yeah. for me is a deep challenge. And that's why this is the right challenge for me. It's a challenge, exactly. right? It's not about it being yeah. a given. I don't want it to be a given. I want it to be that hard for me. And... um And then I said to him, you know, you ski really fast. And he said, yeah, we have somewhere to get to. And I said, well, we're going to get there anyway. But your head is always down. And we're in a place where less than 0.0001% of the world will ever see. Do you really want to say I got there fast, but I, I didn't see anything? Yeah. And what did you see? Like, how did it look up there? It was just blue skies and... Beautiful. It wasn't... I thought it would be just white. Yeah. But, um, you know, the ice, when it forms and then it, you know, there are storms and they crash into each other. So there are all sorts of shapes. Some places there are ice shapes that look like sculptures and they're, you know, two feet tall, three feet tall, four feet tall. Um, It's incredible. And then there are places where the ice is old. And so where it cracks open, you could see blue, turquoise, white, all every shade of blue and green in the ice. And so it was much more colorful mm-hmm. than I thought. And the sun never goes down. And so we got to a point where by, you know, maybe day five, I would know what time of day it is and how many hours we'd been skiing just by where the sun was relative to us going north. I what would an experience. Know, yeah. And then yeah. I would know how many more hours we need to do without having to talk to anyone. Yeah. And how long did the whole trip take? Nine days. Nine days. And then you finally got there and you not only planted the flag, you also um, spread some of the UAE's desert sands, didn't you, up on the North Pole? Yes. That was beautiful. I saw that. That was gorgeous. Now, I want to just ask you about what happens next once you achieve this incredible goal. Did you have like kind of a slump afterwards? Did you kind of feel down because you had nothing else to look forward to that was ever going to be that big? Or have you been trying to find the next new thing for you? Yeah, there is something magical that happens when you disconnect from the modern world and communication and social media and YouTube and all these distractions for anything more than three days. Mm -hmm. And I think that people experience this who go on yoga retreats or, or, you know, fishing Mm -hmm. for two weeks. And I would definitely say... That happened on this trip, where by the end of it, I was scared to come back yeah. to the normal world. I remember on the eighth day, I heard, we were skiing along, and I heard like this sound that sounded alien. And I turned around and I told Rick, the guide, what is that sound? And he said, it sounds like a helicopter. That's co- Someone must have made it to the North Pole, and a helicopter has gone mm-hmm. to pick them up. 
And just the sound of the helicopter. I couldn't even see it. But it was I could so hear. foreign to you it as well. It was so foreign yeah. and so unwelcome. Uh-huh. So unwell, so disruptive to the peace. So okay. people often say, yeah. how did you feel when you got to the North Pole? And I, I felt so small. And so it was so humbling, right? To know that you got there because yeah. of, not in spite of nature. Yeah. That, you know, if nature wanted to block you, you would have never made it ever. It's just so, you know, to be standing at the top of the world and look down at your feet. And I could literally close my eyes and see people cooking their dinner in the kitchen, going to their workplace, doing sports, all sorts of things, partying. And to think all of that is happening there, right, like just right below me. Yeah. It's just such a sense of how small yeah. we all are and how we shouldn't be making things out of yeah. things that are not things and sure. so there's so much learning uh-huh. just from that moment and experience it felt complete okay i love that it felt complete yeah that was beautiful yeah and um i felt grateful mm-hmm. and lucky mm-hmm. i knew that 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 experience of being disconnected is not something you do once in your life right but many times yes. in your life and the more you do it the more you reach more levels of self-awareness and so I knew I would do it again but it's not because I had to outdo what I just did because what I just did was complete and it was right and it worked and it was what I wanted um it was just about how to make sure I seek out more experiences that Mm -hmm. are additive to that journey Mm -hmm. along the way in life and not get caught up in life again I know that you recently launched your own company National Laundry Company. I'm going to be honest, I haven't ever thought about my laundry too much. Mm-hmm. But the more I read about it, the more I've kind of looked into your company as well, I realize that dry cleaning isn't dry cleaning. No. It's dumping your clothes in chemicals. A yeah. modern world is so convenient. Yeah. However, there's so much more hidden toxic chemicals infused in the small things in life that we're not aware of. Mm-hmm. And probably this is what's costing us our health. We do have longer life expectancy, but the quality of life that you want to enjoy is affected by all of this and you don't know why. So you right. wake up thinking, I'm not feeling so good today, but you don't know why should you not feel good. For me personally, I do believe it's all these hidden toxins that, Absolutely, yeah. you know, modern life, corporations, all are willing to expose you to in mm-hmm. exchange for a more convenient service mm-hmm. or a bigger profit, let's say. Dry cleaning is one of those. I personally have been on a mission to remove such chemicals or allergens from my life since I had my first baby. Mm -hmm. He was born with a lot of allergies and sensitivities. Mm -hmm. What then happened was I read an article about it. I forget in which online publication. And I was just horrified, just horrified. And so I started reading more and more and more. And Mm -hmm. not that that one thing alone will change my my son's quality of life. But I think the, the amalgamation of toxins in our house cleaning products toxins in our dish cleaning products, mm-hmm. toxins in our dry cleaning products, toxins in our home laundry. I mean, did anyone tell you how bad fabric softener? These are all chemicals, 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 right. and, and they're being branded as safe and nice smelly. Yeah. And you know, all of that is just too much. Air fresheners are so bad for your lungs. And then um, so out of that came a, a belief that, you know, we need to take that burden away from people. Right. And so that the birth of this brand was more about a brand that cares about mm-hmm. its customers and will go the extra mile to do all of the homework and their research to provide a solution 
that is the safest possible solution that we have today for what is otherwise a, a convenient service that no one's going to stop doing. Uh, more important, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say more important. I mean, it's also a farce, right? So these these chemicals actually did uh, cause the fibers of the garment to deteriorate pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So your garments are getting damaged. The environment is getting damaged. That and of course. You know, no one wants to wear clothes knowing that the person that handled your clothes now has liver cancer because they've been exposed to it every day. Right. Yeah. And because you made a con- conscious decision to let the industry yeah. make money off of that. So how can people learn more about? They're most welcome. We are, we are an open house. Okay. We, there's a lot, lot of information on our website. Which is nationallaundry.ae. Correct. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, we do have some more information on our social media as uh-huh. well. And we are obviously welcome walk-ins for okay. anyone that wants to understand more about our service. Uh, it's about making it easy for the customer yeah. to not have to worry, just to know, okay, yeah. it may not be perfect, but I know that they will find out the best at any given time. If there's a better technology, they'll use that technology. Right. And, um, you know, hopefully as we grow that business, we want to expand it to everything that matters to yeah. us. Throughout my conversation with Elham, I was so inspired and in awe of what she's accomplished. I hope that you felt the same way listening to Elham's story as I did. You can find Elham on Instagram at elkasimi. And for more information on the National Laundry Company, you can visit their website at naturallaundry.ae. You'll find links in the show notes. Like always, I would love to hear what you thought about the episode. You can drop us a DM or tag us on thewaywelive.pod on Instagram. This episode was hosted by me, Natalie Shafani, and produced by Chirag Desai. Our hardworking intern is Abhishek Venkat. And if you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review or tell a friend. It really helps us out. You can find it on Google or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Rami, or any of your favorite podcast players. Just look for The Way We Live, and we'll see you next week.